And sometimes a student will say something to where, you know, if you take either take the student at their word or maybe the student misheard something, but basically teachers will, or students will say things that communicate and mean like, well, this teacher doesn't do that. Or how come you're doing this? Because, you know, in these other classes, this isn't how it works. Um, And that can like, in those moments, I think it's really important, one, that like teachers default with students to having each other's backs and saying like, well, I'm going to go ahead and assume that, you know, Mr. Jacobson has done X, Y, and Z things because this is what we've all agreed to as a teacher. Broken Copier, a conversation about teaching. My name is Jim Mares. My name is Marcus Luther. Uh, So some reminders about the show. This is an independent and listener-supported podcast. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate and diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to folks working in the classroom. Most importantly, the show is about saying thank you to the teachers out there, past, present, and future, who understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We'd love to hear from you on social media at The Broken Copier. And you can subscribe to episodes and other writing at thebrokencopier.substack.com. If you'd like to support, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast wherever you stream and to just text your friends a link to an episode so they can tune in as well. Uh, and one quick thing I'm, before I forget, uh, we I played a game on social media and I want to give some shout outs to people who shared episodes and tagged the broken copier. So the first shout out is to Shannon, my sister-in-law in Dayton, Ohio. I appreciate Shannon. You're really ride or die with this podcast. So I appreciate that a lot. Uh, and then of course, one of our co-founders, Brandon Piasecki. So those were two, those are the two people who uh, shouted us out on social media. Um, if you want to get a shout out, you can share us, uh, share a post or an episode uh, and if you tag a, tag us on, especially on Instagram or Twitter at the Broken Copier, uh, we'd love to hear from you there. So, Marcus, what do you got? <laughs> yeah, uh, for today, our focus is well. First, just acknowledging that we're at that point in the school year where exhaustion is a real thing, and I'm sure any teacher listening to this feels mm-hmm. every syllable of that word, exhaustion. Uh, and also, because of that, in a way whatever cracks or weaknesses in a classroom or a school building really begin to emerge much more visibly, much more tangibly. Uh, and this is almost like, I feel like a good systems check moment where we want to have a conversation about systems overall and really more about consistency or the idea of whether or not every classroom should be the same for students and whether teachers should be a hundred percent aligned because it's something that's discussed a lot and the lack thereof of consistency is discussed a lot, but it's a lot easier to talk about than actually make manifest in our rooms. Uh, And we just want to have a conversation about our thoughts as teachers about that idea of consistency or collective efficacy, especially bringing student voices into that conversation. So that'll be what we center on today in this conversation, along with some appreciations at the tail end for teachers of our own uh, in this time period where it just it's important to lean on that joy and gratitude. 
before all that though, Jim, like how we usually like to begin, what's something good going on in your classroom right now? Uh, yeah. So I would say I want to, I just want to give a shout out. I don't think any of them listen to this podcast, but uh, the 10th grade humanities teachers at my school, this is uh, a real nod to the importance and the value of vertical alignment. Um, but our first round of essays, we've had two full rounds of essays in, in the first quarter, and we just wrapped them up. And they're great. Like the essay, we, there's, there's some students who are like struggling to get across the finish line and, um, you know, get the word count to where it needs to be. But in terms of rhetorical analysis, which is a big thing that we focus on in AP Lang and like perspective taking is hard for a teenager, like even psychologically to put themselves in the shoes of another person. And that's like a really big skill that you have to be able to do to write a strong rhetorical analysis essay. Um, And we have had two rounds now. One was just an argumentative essay, but this most recent essay that we got back was this rhetorical analysis essay from kind of a longer New York Times piece on like the greatness of Serena Williams, which was really fun. But the essays themselves were, and I told the kids this, I was like, look, this this is the best rhetorical analysis that I have seen uh, since working at Brook High School. The the level of detail and nuance and complexity was really, really exciting. And I know that a lot of the 10th grade teachers, um, the 10th grade humanities teachers, had started to build in some ret- like rhetorical analysis ideas with note taking and and even in some of their history classes. And so it's just been exciting to see. Um, and I am very appreciative of, of their work and excited for the kids because I think this early in the year, um, is a good place to be. So that's been going well. How about you? Well, we're not, we don't plan these things in advance this part. Uh, I'm going to talk, I'm going to bring on, uh, some student essays too, that I just got finished grading very similar where the results collectively were incredibly impressive, just like quite simply, uh, I'm so excited uh, for what that means also going forward. And I tried to share that enthusiasm. Uh, something I'm doing differently this year with our writing process, though, is I know one of my bad habits in the past would be I'd spent all this time creating this feedback on essays or whatever the project was. And then it'd be like, here you go. And then like two minutes later, okay, and move on to the next thing. And you're like, in your mind, you're like imagining, oh, I'm sure they're going to go home and like go through every nuance of my feedback and we'll create this dialogue, you know, but if you don't create space for it, a lot of that feedback is wasted. So I tried to do better this year at creating a space for like almost like a full class period to go over that feedback. So a couple of things I did differently that so far it seemed like they are working well is one after celebrations and if you've listened to this podcast before you know i'm a big fan of celebrations i then went through five trends and with student examples anonymously of like this is something i'm seeing in terms of our growth despite all the successes of the essays and then they had to debrief with their group without looking at their essays which of those trends they expected to be pegged on theirs so they had to anticipate what those would be, along with giving themselves a grade for their process before they saw their results. So how were they, 
from start to finish, getting their prompt to turning it in, in terms of the steps they took to be successful. And they had that conversation collectively uh, in groups, the whole group. And then they get their essays back and we go through a process of them going through their feedback. And I've created a Google Doc this year for uh, every time they get an essay back to reflect on their process as well as one takeaway from their results that they want to focus on. And every time there's a formal writing piece and it's not just their essays, it could be like uh, this like flash fiction project we have or a narrative poem, always coming back to that question. How was your process? How are your results? And that document just keeps growing as the year goes on. It creates like their story of the year as a writer and it's in their shared folder so I can watch their thinking emerge. So I'm just trying to be more intentional about creating some glue between the individual things we do in the school year, especially given that they've got so much else going on. They've got seven other classes, all their activities, work, et cetera, to make sure there's one place where they can come back to and say, okay, this is my journey as a writer this year. I'm trying to be more tangible about that. And I was really excited about how that began these last couple of weeks. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, we got two English teachers here on the pod. We try our best not to really focus on the English stuff, but I don't know. It's, it can be inevitable sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's shift gears then to consistency beyond just the two of us in this podcast. Uh, talk about a transition. And let's talk about the actual term collective efficacy. So I'm going to go from this article by Bandura. Uh, a group's shared belief in its conjoint ability, capability to organize and execute the courses of action required to produce given levels of attainment. So blah, 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 all these things that like I read that and I'm still trying to process this early in the morning. But it's pretty simple is that by doing getting on the same page, we will do better at getting the results we want. The idea that consistency yields benefits across the board. What are your thoughts? Like, Jim, why did you want to talk about this in the first place? So I've been thinking about this. Uh, consistency has been a, a big focus of my school this year. And I think it can be the type of thing that's, that is really frustrating. There's, there's like a lot of rep. There's a lot of, I, there's a lot wrapped up in this idea, I think for teachers. Um, and I'm going to start with like a quick example to try to illustrate this, but the first I would want to um, caveat this with like, to me, I think a thing that really needs to happen more in like a lot of schools and can like, can be hard to build is making sure that like teachers are trusting each other to be on the same page. And sometimes a student will say something to where, you know, if you take, either take the student at their word or maybe the student misheard something, but basically teachers will, or students will say things that communicate and mean like, well, this teacher doesn't do that. Or how come you're doing this? Because, you know, in these other classes, this isn't how it works. Um, and that can like, in those moments, I think it's really important. One that like teachers default with students to having each other's backs and saying like, well, I'm going to go ahead and assume that, you know, Mr. Jacobson has done X, Y, and Z things because this is what we've all agreed to as the teacher um, or as a, as the team of teachers. So I'm going to start with this, this example that I think 
hopefully everyone, I imagine everyone will relate to, which is bathroom systems and the bathroom policy. So let me just ask you real quick. Don't you don't have to give too much uh, too much color here, but what's your bathroom policy? How does it work? Or for students to leave the room? So the basics for us are first 10, last 10, it's pretty much no, unless there's an emergency. So first 10 minutes of class have to be in the room. Last 10 mm-hmm. minutes of class have to be in the room. Uh, there's a sign-out process with uh, Hall Pass uh, that they have to have an individual and it's the same color. It's like some weird neon color uh, across the school. So every kid gets the same one paper-wise. You got to leave their phone and it can only be one student at a time because you guys school of 2000 students uh one student at a time for almost 100 classrooms is a lot of students in the hallway uh at the mm-hmm. end so that's like kind of the basics uh that honestly pretty good system uh, in terms of how it's been experienced at our school so w- w- what about yeah. you yeah uh and one one other quick question before do you physically stop and write the pass or the do the student is there like a stack of passes and the students go up and write them themselves mm-hmm. The students are expected to fill out every part of the pass except for the teacher signature. Okay, interesting. So the hall passes are, the the hallway system uh, is, I think, a lot, the the amount of students that are like walking around and wandering the hallways uh, is tough for the dean team, tough for teachers. And like you even use the keyword emergency that students really seem to cling to, to as like a completely, I mean, sometimes it is an emergency. And like, as a teacher, you obviously don't want to be like in an argument with students about whether or not they're having an emergency. Um, But the hall pass thing. Okay. Okay. The hall pass thing has been a pain point. I think for a lot of teachers, myself included this year at our school, because we don't have, uh, we don't have that like clear school-wide system for how hall passes should work. And I think part of it is in like the name of teacher autonomy and flexibility. And like you get to decide what your hall pass thing is. Um, so here's my story of hall passes. We started out the year with physical lanyard style hall passes and most most of the time and those were like supposed to be colored by the floor so like my room is on the second floor and second floor passes are blue uh and i forget the colors of the other floors but that's like kind of one of the ideas behind it so that people can identify where the students are coming from um the problem with the physical hall passes is that they were getting stolen so students didn't want to take them into the bathroom. So there are these hooks that are outside the bathroom and they would hang the passes up. They would go into the bathroom. And while they were in the bathroom, the passes would mysteriously disappear. Uh, present, per, you know, I assume that that is, I, and I trust them. Like they come back and they would say like, um, they would be frustrated and annoyed that they don't have their hall pass. Uh, and it was gone. And students, and I know that this happens, like students will just sneak them away in their pockets and so that they can just like be wandering the halls or like have a hall pass and like it looks like they have teacher permission to be out of the room when they actually don't. So then I started taking the phones, which is a standard practice. I know a lot of people do it, but that became a thing in my room where students were getting really frustrated because not every teacher 
what not every teacher was asking for collateral. And then they were pushing back on that because they were like, well, like what happens if my hall pass gets stolen? Like that happens. And are you going to give me my phone back if it gets stolen? Like, that's not really my fault. And I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to give you your phone back if the hall pass is stolen and it's not your fault. But the point here is just like creating a little bit of friction and a a physical transaction and a cost, right? Do you really want to like give up your phone, even though they're not supposed to have their phones anyways, but that's like, there's like a whole, all kinds of layers that are wrapped up in this. So then I was like, okay, uh, the, this physical hall pass lanyard thing is not working at all. Um, so I did away with them and now we're doing some written hall passes and I will, I have a similar thing. I don't require students to give up their phone now in order to go to the bathroom. Um, but frankly, I think it, I think it would, like, I think if all teachers did do that, if that was like an expectation to give to put something up, I have like a little phone carrier thing that's hanging at the front of the room. Um, and I think that that's just like, it's helpful as a teacher. It seems a little bit micromanaging, but it's helpful as it's a helpful sort of physical reminder for the student of like okay, I need to come back and get my phone or whatever. Um, but, and we're supposed to, we do five minutes. First five, last five is an automatic no. And then um, we, it's one student at a, it's supposed to be one student at a time. So I was in a meeting the other day and we're with our AP on the, I was with my AP. We were talking about curriculum on the for, fourth floor and two students walked by her office with the window open and she like sighed and got frustrated and rolled her eyes. And I was like, what? And she said, those two students are in the same class. Like, I don't know what's going on, but the teacher is not supposed to be sending multiple students from the same class out into the room or out into the hallway. So this, the hall pass thing, I think is like a really good example of one area where the entire I think it's really important that the entire school is on the same page and really executes the hall pass system faithfully and consistency um but it's hard and like in in the in moments like that where like it can create tension with oh well you you're making you're making me give up my phone but this other like no other teachers make me give up my phone how come that like this seems mean or unfair and it's just like a lot, a lot of opportunities to like push back and challenge the rules and like say it's an emergency if it's not an emergency. And it's just been something to me, this is a good example of like the more, the more a school can be on the same page with systems like this, the more predictable it can be for students and therefore the easier it will be over time, the easier it will be for all teachers to enforce the rule faithfully and it becomes better over time. But to me, this is the kind of thing that like er can erode trust with teachers or is just causing frustration. And especially like if you're a newer teacher, that can be like a really overwhelming system to manage because you like sometimes, you know, I teach juniors and they'll ask me, we also have a norm in, in the room, like do not interrupt. Like if I'm teaching, and if I'm like need everyone's attention, um, 
don't interrupt me to ask a question to ask to go to the bathroom, right? The appropriate time to ask to go to the bathroom is if we're doing independent or group work. Um, and they know that. And sometimes they'll ask me to go to the bathroom and I'll say, no, not right now, but in a little bit. And they're, they're generally fine with that. But sometimes, especially ninth graders will like, can push back and throw a fit and be like, what? Like, and then, then you, then you're like in this sort of like public power struggle confrontation about whether or not it's an emergency for them to leave and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that is one example of like a school wide system that I think is connected to this idea of collective efficacy and is the type of thing that can erode trust either with teachers or it's just really frustrating. It's just annoying. It's really, really annoying to have to manage this um, because the, I, I've told students before, like the thing that I care about the least in the whole world is who's next to go to the bathroom. And I say that like jokingly and they know that it's a joke, but at the same time, like, I don't know, you do have to go to the bathroom and like, it's, it's a thing that you need to manage. And so, um, I don't know, I've sort of been rambling here, but what, what are some of your responses to this? So two thoughts on this. Uh, number one, uh, I think, so I'll just share my own example when they implemented our system that I would argue is going very well uh, last year is that I remember when we got the email like this, like this is the system. We had too many students in the hallway, kind of a lot of the things that you were talking about and yeah, you know, got this. And it was a very like specific system. Like they wanted students to go through all these steps in part to make sure that it was a little bit less uh, motivation to go, especially the idea of like, Hey, it's a lot more fun to wander the hallways and take your time with your phone in your hand when you're not allowed to have it in class. So that's one of the reasons they want them all to be taken up, et cetera. And it seemed like this kind of exhaustive system. And I remember like my first response was I'm thinking about all the steps this needs to be like, this feels like it's going to violate the trust of the system I had set up personally that I thought was going very well from my vantage point, you know, and you know, get along very well with my uh, supervising principal. And I you know, sent a nice respectful email saying, here are some like points of consideration, like basically saying like why we should do it my way, not this way. Uh, I remember sending that email and getting a thoughtful response back of saying like, Hey, we're, we really need to just all do this the exact same way. Give it a go. And I'm like, you know what? Like 100% right. And I think they, and I kind of kept my mouth shut for the most part, was expecting it not to go as well as it did and just bought into this is the way we were going to do this across the building. And guess what? It worked better. And I, what I want to note about this is that I think for anything around consistency and systems and collective efficacy, what's going to happen is every teacher in their own little fiefdom of their classroom has this assumption that they know the right way and the best way to make it work. And I, I've been there. I just gave an example of that. And one, you can be wrong. And two, even if you're right, the value of getting everyone on the same page, even if it's not the ideal for your classroom, oftentimes the, this goes back to the term collective efficacy that outweighs your individualized systems benefits. The idea that we're all on the same page, especially at a major, you know, big school. I'm not. I'm used to smaller schools where you can maybe get away with some more flexibility. So, 
like I would argue I agree in the sense of collective efficacy around those type of systems. I think it gets harder when we talk about how you give assessments, how you grade mm-hmm. students. Like the, this is where teachers get a little bit more defensive of their practices. Uh, but my first thought is to agree and to give an example of when I've been wrong and where I've kind of had to humble myself and say, you know what, buying into what we're doing holistically is important. And I'll also celebrate what my principal did in the sense of, I think teachers' voices need to be affirmed in that. Like, hey, I'm going to hear feedback. This is feedback I've gotten. I'm going to talk to you about it. Like, you don't want to just say like my way or the highway. You want teachers to feel like they're involved, but also just because your voice is involved doesn't mean you get it your way. I think sometimes people like to say, oh, I want my voice to be heard. And when they say that, they mean, oh, I just want you to do it the way I want to do it. So that's my first point. My other point I want to acknowledge, though, is I think even listening to this, if you're not in high schools right now or you're not in schools, period, like mm-hmm. how how can you tell someone not to go to the bathroom if they don't want it? If they want, I think it can feel very like top down, like not honoring agency of students. Like shouldn't students just like adults be able to like get up out of the room and go? And I think sometimes uh, in the Twitter sphere or online, like we can talk about things in this ideal space. Uh, theoretically, uh, pedagogically, of how we want things to be. And then we hit reality of the classroom and seeing like what the chaos that would ensue in a 2000 student high school if people were just going wherever they wanted to go at any given time. Uh, And you have to make these hard choices. And as someone who cares very much about student agency and would love to create this ideal space where there was more looseness and freedom, uh, at times that just isn't feasible in the current moment. And I think uh, I just want to acknowledge that too, is that even something as simple as how hall passes are distributed can one, cause a lot of friction at a building level. And two, really does require a lot of thought and conversation to make happen because it can affect student relationships. It's important to create these good systems. Uh, so yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think a lot of times we end up getting into the grading nuances and this is a very tangible thing that's experienced, not just in English classrooms, but building wide. Yeah. Well, I was, I appreciate that a lot because grading was the other place that I was going with this, which is a lot more complicated and can be a lot more, um, like you said, personal for teachers. Um, one, one quick point on that though, I really, I, I really appreciate that the response from your assistant principal was what it was. Um, and I think that is a key skill. Some, sometimes like a, like an important leadership skill for, for, uh, administrators to be able to say to teachers, like, no, like, sorry, this is, this is the way that it's got to be because, for the sake of uniformity. And I've, I've had that happen to me before as well. And I really respect that a lot. Like, I think, I think if administrators are grounded in like, no, I actually, our job is to have the 360 view of the school and know like what's going on between classrooms and in the hallways and even in and outside of school. Um, so I just really need you to do this. I I've had that happen to me before as well. And, um, I respect, I completely respect that. And so I think that's another thing, like as a teacher, like knowing 
knowing when policies are being pushed for the sake of collective efficacy to just like get on the same page and do the same thing as everyone else and make sure that you're consistent with that, which I, I would say like, I've never met a teacher who's not interested in that. Like I've never, like I've never met a teacher who is like, wants to like completely go rogue and like be out there because everyone knows that they're, um, you know, what they do impacts other teachers. And so, but it can be, the line can be sort of hard to find. Oh, I, I, you're 11. I, I can think of numerous teachers who are in the my way or the highway mindset. I've, I've been there at times. So I, I, I would okay. guess, grant a little less generosity. Uh, and I'll just acknowledge that I've had that fixed mindset at times uh, rather than obviously calling out. But the other thing I think based on what you just said, that's really important for teachers to think about is how are you doing this in your own classroom with students? Uh, because in the same way that you want to hold firm, but you want to hold firm in a way that acknowledges and invites student feedback to that system. So, you know, one thing I did a few weeks ago is just like a quick, like, Hey, how are things going here? Pacing wise, just quick end of assessment survey, uh, kind of a way too fast, a little too fast, right pace, Goldilocks style, slow, way too slow. And I actually just like put those results the next class on, on the class period. So I'm like, look, you know, 60% of you were going the right pace. Great. 25% of you a little bit too fast. 15% of you, uh, not fast enough. And like, you're all in the same space. There's 90 of you across the different classes. Mm-hmm. What would you do if you were the teacher and you got these results? And they actually debriefed with their little groups and came up with like, uh, their solutions and their feedback. And then I just listened and I said, look, honestly, like I'm the teacher, I'm going to have to make a call based on this data, but I want you to see this is the collective feedback that I'm getting. I hear your voices. I want to value all of them and I want to make some pivots and here are the pivots I'm going to make. But I also just want you to see that your perspective is not the same as others on this thing. Mm -hmm. And we can't all go at our own individualized pace as much as I would love to theoretically. So I, I try to take that example from my principal into the classroom too, which is another reason I appreciate his leadership with that. Yeah. Students really, high school students, I mean, I think all students do, but high school students really appreciate being taken seriously and being treated, being treated with that level of respect to say, look, here's the thing that I'm dealing with. And this is the call that I'm going to make it like you shouldn't, I feel like that's, you don't want to be like always doing that, like always updating, always changing types of types of things. But if you have key moments, did you do that at like the end of a unit or the end of a quarter? Yeah. 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 So I think if you have those key moments to show students, okay, this is the problem that we're trying to solve together, pacing, bathroom, any, whatever it is, um, I think that they, if you bring them in a little bit on the process, then they understand it's, I was talking about perspective taking, that's a skill. If they understand like your perspective and why things operate the way that they do, I think they'll be a lot more bought in. Um, so, oh yeah, go ahead. Go on, go ahead. I think this is a good time though. Cause I think this is the one where we're on the same page about. Here's my question is I want to like, how would you respond as a teacher if you come to school, like start of the school year and your principal, your leadership team sits everyone down and says, 
hey, we've got this new system of grading, this new system of how we're going to, you know, give grades or give assessments, and we're going to do it school-wide because of this collective efficacy. And you're in that room, and it is completely contrary to how you do things as a teacher. I know you spend a lot of time, like your you know, your weird logarithm algorithm for your essay grading, and like you have a, your own system that's made it work for AP Lang, AP Seminar. And your principal sits everyone down and says, it's very important that you all are grading the exact same way to build that collective buy-in with our students and our families and communicating that out. How do you respond in that meeting? Like what goes through your mind if you are told that, since you just said you're all on board Mm -hmm. about collective efficacy, what happens if that's brought up to you? Well, one, it's not that weird. It's a square root curve. So you take the square root of their percentage and that's the, that's the point. That's, it's not that hard. Um, but if you're interested in the square root curve, shout out to my, my friend Carter, who's the stats teacher who sold me on this. Um, I can talk you through it, but I mean, I would, if, if I know, and this is, this is more now that I'm sort of later on into my career, but like if, if a policy like that is framed with um, the idea of consistency and teamwork, like I will tend to try to revamp. And I have, I've come, I have changed the way that I grade things um, based on what, what every, what I understand everyone else is supposed to do. So since I've started working at Brook, um, I have graded everything out of a hundred points. Like it's just all, cause I felt like that was like a more, that was an easier way because it's a very concrete way for students to understand their feedback and their grading on an assignment. So if it's an exit ticket, the rubric and the grading expectations to earn a hundred percent are very different from what you need to do in order to earn a hundred percent on an essay or a multiple choice quiz or something like that. But the feedback to students is always posted in terms of 100%. Um, and from there, it, I, and last year and in, in years past, everything was also out of 100. So we had, uh, we had practice averages and we had performance averages. And the performance is, this is like one of the ways that we're approaching mastery-based grading and standard-based grading around, well, the performance assessments, the bigger, there are fewer and larger performance assessments in a quarter. And those are weighted for 70, those are weighted at 70% of a student's overall quarter grade. Um, those are out of 100, 100%. And then also the multiple practice assessments that we have, ex, even exit tickets or paragraphs or, or sort of uh, these connection journal type of assignments that I use for writing, those are also graded out of 100%. Now, I have been told, because part of our system is we're, suppo- we're, not, su- we're not supposed to do that. Things are supposed to be out of 10, and, st- and you or excuse me, things are supposed to be out of different point valuations, right, in order to help students communicate and understand prioritizing assessments. So quizzes and tests in my class and essays. So tests and essays are out of 100 points. You know, like you have 100 performance points available to you. 
Um, smaller performance assessments that are still weighted in your 70% performance category, uh, like reading quizzes and things like that, those are out of 20 points or out of 50 points, depending on what I want that to be. So the impact in that has been, there's there have been slightly more um, performance assessments or performance grades for students that, that are bigger and drive their grade more. Um, but the point values are differentiated within that. And it's resulted in fewer of the, the like practice grades where those, those are supposed to be more formative. And now anything that's in my practice average or my practice category is graded out of 10, 10 points, because it's not, it's not as big of a deal as some of these other things. Um, which it, you know, mathematically it's still, it's mathematically, it's still out of a hundred, right? Like if you have, if you have 10 practice grades throughout the quarter and your practice average is worth 30% of your quarter grade, then all the, all the, your grade is just calculating with your percentage. So it doesn't really matter if I graded out of a hundred points or 10 points, if you get an 85% or an 8.5 on this exit ticket, your, your overall practice average is going to be, have the same effect on your grade. But it can get very sort of complicated and very, very, a little bit messy with students and with teachers, because this is another area where I think a lot of teachers are doing things differently. Even though we have the 70-30 policy, performance and practice, we also have a 50% grade minimum. So that like, basically, it's always possible for a student to earn a passing grade, even if, you know, that way, like you have you have like a floor that you're operating on. Um, but even in my school right now, people are doing two point quizzes and three point quizzes. And, you know, you're only getting So the point value distinction is still an area where teachers are doing their own thing. Um, and that, and, and like a lot of teachers, well, not a lot, but some teachers have really strong feelings. Like we shouldn't have, like if a student does nothing, they shouldn't earn a 50%, that type of, that type of pushback. I mean, the short answer to your question is now I would like, I, I, I do try my best to adapt the score, the grading score to, to have the impact and to work within the policy that I'm, that I'm trying to fit that's been handed down to me. And I think that it's my responsibility as the teacher to understand my content well enough to know how the content should translate into that grading system. So yeah, I think now like I'm on the fence or I'm on the side of like, I really don't have time and I don't have the brain space to push back and nitpick policies. If it's framed in a way of, this is what we're all trying to do to make the school day more predictable for students. I think it's my responsibility and it's the teacher's responsibility to take their content and translate that into making the policy work school wide based on what the policy is supposed to be. Yeah. And I appreciate you acknowledging that. Uh, and I think I'm with you on that. And I think the two things that can be undercutting of such collective efficacy with especially things like grades and I'm thinking about past schools. Uh, one, if it happens mid-year, I always respond to it differently 
than if it's something that I've had time to adjust to. Because I really do believe at this point, our, both our careers, if you're given a set of systems and policies early enough, you can make your classroom fit in a meaningful way within them. But if I've already communicated out, here's what we're doing, building the trust and rapport with students and families, and now, okay, school-wide shift in October, and that's not what I've had to experience in recent years, thankfully, uh, mm -hmm. that can be really hard because it can make you be like you're communicating the shift and it hurts your trust with students. Uh, so that's one thing that I think depend the timing matters. I also think it's hard, again, going back to like, you know, early years of teaching where you, you hear this is like the thing we're all going to do. And you mm -hmm. very quickly find out that not everyone's bought in. So then it can mm -hmm. be hard motivation style to affect your classroom and make a change when you know it's not happening to others. Because if, if the purpose of collective efficacy is to get everyone on the same page and others aren't doing the collective efficacy, it defeats the original intent of consistency. So I think that can be undercutting as well. Uh, and I think my third thing that I'm thinking about now, though, is how, how schools can straddle the need to adjust and respond not just to circumstances, but just to avoid like the status quo gravity of just always doing things the same way and still also mm -hmm. very much value collective efficacy and systems because I think that those things hit against each other sometimes where you want to adjust. And it sounds like your school is trying to adopt these policies, these new policies that are more progressive and are willing to adjust to what we now know about student learning and what's best for students, which is good. I, I like hearing about those. But at the same time, I think sometimes the idea of getting everyone on the same page can sometimes be, let's just do things the way we've always done, or let's, it almost can prevent teachers from being inventive within their spaces and responding the way they need to and not trusting them as professionals to have that flexibility. Now, I'm saying that as someone who is pretty much all in at this point with collective efficacy and us being on the same page and teachers having the humility to acknowledge their own way of doing things is not always the best way. But I can hear that other voice from past years for myself or other people listening saying, why don't you trust me as a teacher to make my classroom look the way I know based on what I'm seeing with my students in my content area? Why don't I have the expertise and trust to make that happen in my classroom space? Do you do you want me to respond? Is, I, is I, I guess I think that is the hardest part about this. Yeah. How do you yeah. respond to that teacher, even though neither of us at this point are that teacher? How do you respond to that teacher? Because a lot of times they have good points. Yeah, I think the way that you respond, like, I think that part of the skill of being an instructional leader, I think you, it's that it's a hard job. I do not want that job. <laughs> It's a very hard job because teachers have uh, very, very strong feelings about those because they're kind of, like, if you ask teachers to change grading systems, if you ask teachers to change culture systems like bathroom passes or when you give a consequence or a detention or even like a redirection, like that has personal, that has like very, very material consequences on their job. Uh, and especially on their day-to-day -day relationships with students. And so I feel like it's important to honor and like validate when teachers are upset by something or have questions about something or are pushing back. But 
I think, I mean, it's a balancing act. I think you have to be really good at, at staying clear with like whatever the policy is that needs to happen and motivating and, and also helping a teacher say, okay, let's, let's sit down and walk through the ways in which you're, you feel like your classroom policies are bumping up against this school-wide system. Cause I think, I think sometimes, uh, administrators or principals or assistant principals have like a, a flaw that I've seen before is just saying, nope, sorry, like this is a school-wide thing and this is just what you need to do. So go figure it out. That is extremely demotivating and devaluating, devaluing for a teacher. Whereas it is part of the administrator's job, I would argue, to help the teacher be more comfortable. If, if, if the school-wide push for a system is important enough that every teacher needs to get on the same page and do it. They, you know, they need support to see how they're, especially with grading. I think I'm thinking a lot about grading when I'm talking about this, sit down with a teacher and come up with and help brainstorm ways that the grading system can be, um, that this system can work with in their classroom. Because if, if teachers are, become a, more aware sometimes there's just misconceptions sometimes it's like oh you're telling me now that like i have to now that like exit tickets are weighted the same as a test like that doesn't make sense no that's actually not what's happening right so sometimes i think that pushback can come from just straight up misconceptions and misunderstandings of how the policy is supposed to work and then other times that are more harder conversations they can be beliefs uh, teacher beliefs about, well, this is my vision of education. This is my pedagogy. This is like, this is rooted in like a belief that I have. And and I would use the example of the 50% grade floor minimum. Like I know a lot of teachers who, not just in my school, you know, make the argument that zero work is 0% no matter what. And like, yeah, the 50% grade floor is uh, the 50% grade floor is easy to get. Like basically, if you have any evidence that you were thinking at all, you should get a 50%. But it doesn't feel right to give it doesn't feel right to give um, a 50% for zero work or for not handing something in. Well, then you're into makeup work policies. Then you're into late work policies. Then you're into credit recovery and then you're into these conversations around when the students are going to whether or not the students are going to graduate high school on time so that i mean the short answer to your question i would say is one the skill of motivating people are you like your job is to motivate the teacher and to help them understand the policy and at the end of the day if they're really just pushing back and saying, no, I'm not going to give 50% for no work, then you, you just kind of have to say, okay, I'm sorry, we disagree, but like, this is, this is about a school-wide thing. And you kind of what your assistant principal did to you, it was just like, look, you really just got to get on the same page here. This isn't like, this isn't a make or break thing. I don't think you're, you know, and you can have the conversations around 
this is what I really appreciate about your classroom and your instruction and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes I think you just got to hold the line and say, no, this is this is what we're doing. And I'm sorry that you disagree, but like we have to do it. Excuse me. And I think. I mean, maybe I'm being too generous here, but I, I feel like most of the time teachers are, I would hope that teachers are kind of willing in those moments to try something faithfully and execute something faithfully. But that's a challenge. It's, it is definitely a challenge for sure. Yeah. And I think you're right that it, the way it's communicated matters. Uh, the number of changes that have come before that uh, matters, right? Because I think we're probably like this sweet spot in our career where we're receptive to these changes, but you know, maybe play this back to us 20 years from now. Uh, and we've gone through 15 different systems changes with well-communicated reasons. And at some point, like I remember watching a teacher walk out my very first year of teaching saying it was the state department who'd come in to say, Hey, we're doing this new policy of the state. And he, he literally said, you know, whenever they send the next version of you two years later from Northwest Arkansas <laughs> to tell us what to do, uh, you know, I'll take notes on that, but cause I know you're not going to be here in two years and I am. And he walked out yeah. and I was just like, it's like, wow. I know you can do that as a you know, first year teacher. But uh -huh. I think if you've seen change after change and consistency being inconsistent after time after time, it's hard to get bought in and to that. And I also think that it just is difficult to do two things that can sound competing. You want to mm -hmm. have those pedagogical conversations as a staff, like this work is personal. We walk into this work with our own sets of values and beliefs and biases, to be fair. And we say, this is what's best. I think teachers really, and then we spend most of our day in our own, again, I'm going to use the word fiefdom. Like you have a lot of control and power as a teacher in that space. And mm -hmm. in that space, you can become very conditioned to believe, I know what's best for this space. And, mm -hmm. and you and I both have felt those feelings and probably still have these assumptions whether it's your uh, you know square root derivative algorithm confusion or my you know, Marcus, re revision, it's I'm not like, it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason we're both teaching English. Uh, yeah, but I think that it's really hard to step out of that space and then have humility to hear from someone who's not in your space nearly as much as you to like the one one hundredth degree to say this is what we're going to do in your space and. I just, I think it's, I appreciate this conversation today because yeah. I can only imagine how difficult it is from one level up trying to get all these teachers on the same page. Cause I just think teachers are a pain in the ass sometimes, uh, quite honestly, yeah, they can uh, be, they, I just think that's, it's just because this work is what it is. We need to get off our pedestals at time and just get feedback and other viewpoints. And something I appreciate, like I love the school I'm at because I know there are so many teachers who are doing incredible things that are very different than things that I do in my classroom. And I love one, mm -hmm. just learning and stealing uh, all the time uh, mm -hmm. and talking with them about, hey, like what's something I can bring into my classroom? Like I love that. And that's a good thing to have because it grants me humility to say, even if I feel good about what I'm doing, there might be a better way. And that has to be, I think I'm grateful for that humility, but I also know that when you're trying to enact systems wide change and get people on the same page, sometimes teachers are the biggest problem in that too. I mean, we love and support teaching be. podcasts, yeah. of course, like that is our founding goal, but I do yeah. think uh, we need to acknowledge that teachers are not the easiest to work with at times. Uh, 
strongly acknowledge that, especially since I spent two years as an instructional coach uh, in Arkansas. You ready to appreciate teachers now? Yeah, yeah, I am. Well, I want to make one quick point on the the teacher celebration before we do that. I think, like, if we're ending with some advice for teachers around some of these topics, I think that my advice is around recognizing that, like, administrators are people too, and administrators are doing this administrators are trying principals, assistant principals, deans, like they're people too. And they're showing up to work every day, trying to do right by students. And they're, they're trying to make decisions and communicate and balance things that are really challenging and really hard. And like, so my advice is around humility and like knowing that, knowing that administrators by and large, I mean, I have, I, I, I don't want to speak categorically here. Like I've met some very sort of my way or the highway type of principles. And that is very demotivating, but like try to try to put yourself in the shoes of, the, of a, of an administrator or a person who's attempting to make a school-wide push or change. Um, and just, you know, have some, have some openness to those types of conversations because ultimately there could be a world where your life will be easier. Your job will be easier. If everyone is doing the hall pass thing, like what your school is doing and it's going well, then suddenly the hall pass thing, which is the most annoying thing for teachers in the world goes away and it becomes largely a non-issue. And so I think I think if if you have it in mind where the goal of this policy is to solve a really complex thing that's happening in a lot of a lot of other classrooms if that problem is solved your life becomes easier. So try to have a little bit or or ideally in an ideal world your life would become easier. So try to have a little bit of humility and authenticity and like approaching instructional leadership with the same kind of respect and understanding that we ask students to do of our classrooms on a daily basis. I think that's really important. That was my only other point It's like the, the parallel between what we do as teachers in our classroom spaces and what administrators do at a building level. I think we underestimate how clean that parallel often is. Uh, mm-hmm. And I appreciate the administrators are people too. line. Uh, yeah, they are. Okay. <laughs> Most of the time. Most, Most of the time. time. Except, for, except for Matt Wright, superintendent of Mark Tree High School, if he's listening to this podcast, uh, not a person, I would say. Yeah, yeah that and birds. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. so talk to me about a teacher that you appreciate, because I want to end on that note since we're denigrating the value and agency of teachers today. All right. So I believe that I have – so I have two. And I think I've already shouted him out, so I'm going to make his quick. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about my uh, history teacher, Mr. Murphy, in high school, who is also my neighbor and was also a very instrumental member of the church that I went went to. And um, he just is a real model. And, and he has been teaching at Hanover High School for who knows how many years and he's just a real legend at that school. 
And he is the nicest, kindest, most generous person you'll ever meet. And I really would like, I, it's been on my mind to try to get him to interview him on the podcast. I'm not sure how tech savvy he is. I'm, I'm assuming he'd be able to do, to, to, to do an interview, but I'd like to get him on the podcast to talk with him. And then the other teacher is my 10th grade English teacher, Miss Gato, who um, got me into The Handmaid's Tale. We, I, it's one of my favorite shows. Um, it's one of my favorite books of all time. And um, just the, I don't know, the, the way that she brought that book to life in a high school classroom and really like, it, it was one of the first times in, it was one of the first times in my high school career where I, I realized that fiction was really, really important. That fiction could deal with, it was more than just like wizards and fantasy and escapism. Like it could also um, make really powerful arguments around how society works and around what's at stake. And reading that book for the first time with her classroom and her guidance and her expertise um, was a big deal for me. And to this day, and I've been watching The Handmaid's Tale and thinking about Miss Gato a lot recently. So uh, Miss Gato, I'll send this episode to you. And uh, I appreciate it. All these, all these years later, I appreciate it. Okay. Well, I'm going to jump in with, I think I've talked about her before, but this is one I want to center. Uh, Miss Murphy, uh, going back to the Murphy uh, celebration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this teacher is just like absolutely the example of, in my mind, first and foremost of the, the, the Angelo quote of, you know, people will remember how you made them feel. And I, I talked to so many students who have gone through Miss Murphy's classroom uh, over the years over and since I was in high school and still, and they just like, she made them feel affirmed and valued and like, I can't think of a better example of a teacher who made students feel cared for. Uh, and, but also just a teacher who is always willing to think outside of the box and not just have the idea, but do the work to make that outside the box happen. So an example, uh, they just had apparently their fifth annual great Huck Finn raft race at my former high school, which is where in reading Huck Finn, this group of students are also challenged to create their own physical raft structure as a group. They go out to the reservoir and they have a race with these rafts to like manifest this experience. And, and just, you know, the sheriff's department's there to make sure they got all the safety regulations. The parents are there, you know, former students are there cheering them on. Like how cool is that? Like, it's That's not cool. just this like, Hey, we're going to make this great space within the classroom which I know I'm always like the worst at thinking about outside the classroom. So this is inspiring to me of like not only making your classroom good, but how can you go beyond the classroom to, to really make it memorable, to be that thing that students will always talk about. Uh, And Ms. Murphy does that all the time. And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. I I am inspired just hearing the examples as someone who's a mentor in my life who I cannot, you know, uh, cannot overstate my gratitude for what she's meant for my career in terms of someone to talk with constantly. Uh, but yeah, just like this, I, especially since the raft, the raft race was recently, uh, don't sell yourself short as a teacher. Uh, if you have a vision that you think you can make something great happen, it can happen. And uh, mm-hmm. she reminds me of that 
all the time. And I just want to shout her out because I know talking to former students that she has inspired many, many generations of kids to go on and do their own greatness in the classroom outside of it. And she deserves all the praise in the world for it. Awesome. Well, Marcus, good to connect with you. I have uh, a big stack of letters of recommendation that I'm going to try to make a dent in today. I try not to work on the weekends, but I just got to get this. I just got to get this over with. So I have a very similar stack right now with the exact same input. So yeah, here we go. It's rec season for sure. Um, All right, Marcus, good to connect. Appreciate it as always. So have uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend and uh, have a good week. Same to you. See ya. The Broken Copier is an independent, listener-supported podcast for teachers. The show is written and hosted by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Maris. I do editing and sound design for the show as well. Thanks to Casey Roberts, a blues musician born and raised in the Mississippi Delta, for writing and supplying original intro music. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher currently based in Australia. Right now, you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available now on Spotify. You can stream his music under the name Uncivilized. Fun fact about the album, it includes vignettes from a single called Rain Stomp, which was originally written to support Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action Network for Super Tuesday in 2020. Check out all his work at guitaruncivilized.com and uncivilizedtom.com, where you can sign up for guitar lessons on Zoom, just like I do. Links are in the show notes. Thanks very much to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there, past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of social justice and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching and learning at thebrokencopier.substack.com, where we publish all of our episodes available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.